Well, today is a big day. Do you know why today is such a big day? Why is today a big day? No, it's because it's the state of the crossing. That's why it's a big day. And the Super Bowl. Yep. And, and today, usually we, at the state of the crossing, usually what we do is we take a Sunday to look forward uh, to 2020 and what the Lord is going to do uh, here in the crossing church. And, and I can't think of a better book to go through to kick us off to talk about the state of the crossing than First Peter. We've already been in it for three weeks. We covered the first 12 verses, and it's been awesome. As we see over the next, again, 12 weeks or so, this letter is going to propel us. It's going to lead us. It's going to encourage us. It's going to challenge us to to love Jesus more, uh, to love our neighbors more, and to love each other more. So this is a great book. Again, the last three weeks, we've covered the first 12 verses, and the first 12 verses were about the glorious gospel found in Jesus Christ. By God's great mercy, he is what? He has caused you and me to be born again. This is the greatest message that we could ever, the greatest news that we could ever hear. There's nothing better than the gospel. There's nothing better than what we focused on the last three weeks, and really what we focus on every week here, but it, it was really lucid in the first 12 verses. This is what Jerry Bridges says about the gospel and the importance of its message. The gospel is not only the most important message in all of history, it is the only essential message in all of history. This is what we need to live a joyful life here on earth now, but more more importantly, for eternity. It connects us back to God our Father. Therefore, if you and I together, as the Crossing Church over the next year, can grasp 1 Peter, can think through, can meditate on it, can implement these great truths in our lives then God's going to do something extraordinary here. He's going to transform you and me personally, but he's also going to do it corporately. And he's going to use us to impact this city for his glory and for our joy. As I said, we're going to be celebrating 10 years of gospel ministry later on this spring here at the Crossing. And, and, and this year, for whatever reason, I have a, a greater anticipation of the Lord doing great things. I'm, I'm, I'm like really pumped for 2020. Almost back when it was, I was like when I first started the church. That's how excited I am for 2020. And a big reason of that is obviously the gospel. We have God's word. We have a spirit indwelling us. But I look at you. I'm pumped because of the team, the people that he's assembled in this room. You guys are a people that love Jesus passionately. You guys are, are people that love people passionately, and you want to see those two things combined. So as I look at you guys, and and I know your stories, and I know your hearts, and I know that he's going to do something special through you and through those who will be a part of this that aren't yet, I'm looking forward to 2020. So let's look to our friend and our pastor, the Apostle Peter, this morning, and let him guide us, let him start us off 2020 correctly, which he has already done. So that was we journey through 2020. So here we go. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Be ready. Be ready. This is the first point. Heads up. Be ready. Verse 13. Therefore. Stop right there. Stop right there. Therefore. This is a crucial word for us to understand. Uh, the gravity of this word is a pivotal word because here Peter is making a, a transition in the book. It's the, it's a hinge in which we're going to now walk through. It's a turning point. This word, therefore. Whenever we see the word, therefore, in a scripture, as I, I always, almost always say, we should ask the question, what is it? 
What is it there for exactly? And what it's there for is this. What Peter says, what I'm about to say, what I'm about to say in verses 13 forward, what I'm about to say is based and rooted in what I just said. This is crucial. This is crucial to the Christian faith and understanding the Scripture and understanding who you are in Jesus. What I'm about to say is based and rooted in what I just said, namely one verses 1 through 3, and again, the glorious news of the gospel, what Christ has done in you. What Christ has done in you. Again, this is the turning point. So Peter is moving from what we call the indicatives. The indicative means what is true. And what is true is if you are in Christ, that you have this glorious inheritance that can't be taken away from you. That when you walk through trials, even though you you grieve and they hurt and they're suffering, that you can be joyful because you understand that there's a day when those sin and suffering will be gone and you'll be with Jesus forever. The glorious news of the gospel. The, The glorious news of the gospel, as Rich talked about last week, that angels are looking into because they're amazed at the benefits and the joy and the blessing that God has given to us in the gospel. This is what's true about you in Jesus. And now Peter is making this move through therefore to now what's called the imperatives or the commands. The commands. The exhortations. Now that we have this great salvation, now he wants us to go and live obedient in obedience to the great truths of your salvation. This is why this is so important. This is so important to grasp because Christian, get this, Christian obedience... Christian obedience and uh, obeying the imperatives and the commands is always, is always rooted, initiated, and grounded by our Christian identity in the indicatives, who we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us. And it's never, ever, ever the other way around, the other way around. In other words, our identity is not rooted in our obedience, Obedience is always rooted in our identity. One put it like this, you must first taste and experience the grace and mercy of God before the obligations of grace become operative. And this is fundamental to Christianity. This is what separates Christianity from all of the religions in the world. It separates us. It's utterly unique and different. Every other religion says this, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. If I just do enough, if I'm a good person, if I just do enough through my obedience, then I will be accepted. And even some in the Christian faith bring this mindset into Christianity. Oh, if I just obey God's laws more, the Ten Commandments more, then he'll be more pleased with me. Negative. That is not the gospel. And that will lead to burden. That will not lead to joy. It will put you in bondage. Christianity, the gospel, says this. I'm accepted because what Jesus has done for me, therefore I will obey. I'm accepted, therefore I obey. That's the gospel. I love how another pastor puts it. He puts it like this. Your identity is firmly anchored in Jesus' accomplishment, not yours. His strength, not yours. His performance, not yours. His victory, not yours. Get this. You are not, get this, you are not what you do or what you don't do, you are what Jesus has done. This is why this word is so crucial. Because he's the turning point. Our identity is rooted in Jesus because what he has done through the gospel. Therefore, we now can listen to the commands. 
and have a desire and a motivation to obey them. Not out of duty, but out of love. Amen? Crucial. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. That's what your, my, my Bible says in the ESV and the NIV. But more literally, it says this. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. How many of you have girded up the loins of your mind this morning? Right? What is that phrase? We don't know what that phrase means, gird up the loins of your mind. But for the people that Peter's addressing, they would have got it instantly. And it would have been a very powerful image for them. We know that in the Middle East, especially in Jesus' time, the fashion style that they rocked, all of them, men and women, were what? Long robes, right? They all wore long robes. Even in the Middle East today, you see men and women, they wear these long robes. So to gird up the loins would mean this. If you were going to go do some intense labor, if you were going to go out and work out in your garden, or if you were, you know, you're at work and you're like ready to take a lunch break and you want to go for a lunchtime run, you're in, you, you wouldn't run in your, in, your, in your big long robes, right? What you do is you, you take the excess, you bring them up and you tuck them into your belt. That's what it's called girding up your loins. You take the excess of the robes and tuck them into your belt. So now you can, you can move. You can go for a run. You can work in the garden. You're ready for swift movement. Um, uh, how, how do we say it today? It would be like this. Roll up your sleeves, right? That's what girding up the loins of your mind is. is rolling up your sleeves. But here we see that he tells us not to gird up our loins of our robes, but our minds. Our minds. Gird up or prepare your minds and prepare them for action. So what is Peter commanding us to do? He's commanding us, again, to, to, to gird up our thoughts, to, to take our thoughts, our, our thinking, and all that excess stuff that's just out there. It's like get rid of it and pull them up and fasten them. Gather up the loose ends of your thinking and get rid of all that would hinder you to move forward as an elect exile. In other words, don't waste your time with trivial things or silly arguments. But be a good thinker. Think on the things of Scripture. Be a good theologian. Meditate on the great truths that are in this book, the Bible. Because they're doing something to you when we do. They're preparing you. Peter's telling you, meditate on these things so you're prepared for action. So you're prepared for that classmate, that coworker. Who's going to come up to you sometime this year and say, hey, you're a Christian. Why do you believe the things that you believe? And as 1 Peter 3 says, you'll be, able to re- you'll be ready now to give a defense to the hope that lies within you. Why? Because you've girded up the loins of your mind. You're thinking on things of the scriptures. I mean, think about who Peter is addressing here. As we know, he's, he's addressing people like you and me. They're, they're out there. They're, they're suffering. They're trying to get along in a Genesis 3 world. They're going through some trials. And he doesn't give them some, you know, easy believism sayings. He doesn't give them some sappy catchphrase, some platitude, right? What does Peter do? In the first 12 verses, he unpacks, again, the glorious gospel. He talks about these great theological topics, election, sanctification, He talks about redemption and regeneration and hope and faith and eternal security and even eschatology or Christ's second coming. This is what Peter is is saying, is writing to these believers that need to be comforted. And this is what he's saying to us. Gird up the loins of our mind so that we can be ready for action to share the good news of the truths of Scripture to impact people where they're at. I love what John Owen said. He said this, All my theology is practical and all my practice is theological. 
You see, mind and action go hand in hand. They're not separated. Christianity is, is, a, is, a, is a religion, is, is, is of faith, but it's not blind faith. It uses our intellect. It uses our faculties to understand the great truths. Paul puts it like this in Philippians 4.9. Think on the things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, excellent, worthy of praise. These are the things that our mind should be mostly thinking about. Of course, there's other things that we need to think about outside the Scriptures, but let's make sure that we are focused on the Scriptures, that we are girding up the loins of our mind, and we're not, we're not just dealing in all the little trivial things of the world. Today is the Super Bowl. And you guys know me, my, my background is sports, I love sports, I love the Super Bowl. But for the past 14 days, 24 hours a day, all the sports channels have been talking about the Super Bowl. Everything and anything. That's 336 hours worth of Super Bowl material, right? I mean, that's what their lives have been focused on is the Super Bowl, Super Bowl, Super Bowl, Super Bowl. Now, do we have any Kansas City Chiefs fans in here? I know we got at least one. So go ahead and raise your hand, Kansas City Chiefs. You guys have been waiting for 50 years. So I, I, you know what? There's grace, right? Of course you can sit and meditate on the Super Bowl. That's a, it's a good thing to think about. You know, we got Bronco fans here. You, you got a little bit more success. You guys have been to eight Super Bowls, even though you lost five of them, right? Tied for the most. I'm a Steelers guy, so we've been to eight and won six. But all that said is, we don't, yeah, we don't need to dwell on that, right? Peter's saying that's not important that the Steelers are you know, won the most Super Bowls next to the cheaters, next to the cheaters with the asterisk New England Patriots, right? Okay, I digress. All right, sorry. But again, is it good to think about those things? Absolutely. It's good to think about nature. It's good to think about poems and music and, and, and movies and all that stuff. But our primary focus, Peter is saying, is we should gird up the loins of our mind because we understand that right living flows from right thinking. So that's the first thing. Secondly, he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Being sober-minded. And here's the thing. If we're going to gird up the Lord's of our, uh, loins of our mind, if we're going to prepare our minds for action and be a good thinker, then we must be sober. Then we must be sober. And sober here is, 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 is much more than not being intoxicated by drugs and alcohol. What, that's not the main point. Of course, we know, that's, we, we know that's true. You can't think correctly when you're intoxicated. So it means this. It means more than that. It means this. It means to be on the alert. It means to be watchful. It means that our minds, we should understand what's going on around us. What's going on in our families, with our our kids, with our friends, with our coworkers. We've all probably seen those YouTube videos of uh, individuals who are walking down the street looking at their phones, right? And they're not just looking at their phones. I mean, their heads are buried in their phones, right? And the next thing you know, they fall into what? A big old man, whatever, a manhole pit from some some workers working on the sidewalk there because they're oblivious to the things around them, right? Or they'll run into a pole or walk into a bush. I mean, it's absolutely amusing. You guys should check it out. I I spent like, I had to say, probably about 30 minutes watching those videos this week (laughs) because it was so stinking funny. Now, maybe some of you aren't laughing because that might be you. you. You've done that before. But that's not being sober-minded, is it? That's not being sober-minded. That's not being alert. It's not being a watchful. In other words, Peter is telling us to be situationally aware of what's going on around you in our lives. And we see that Peter loves this word, sober-minded. He uses it two other times. He uses it in 1 Peter 4, 7, and he also uses it in 1 Peter 5, 8. 
First Peter 5, 8 is a familiar verse to, to you and to me. It says this, it says, be sober-minded, be watchful. There they are. Your adversary, the devil, prize, pr- prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's a very graphic image. Um, and I was reminded reading this verse this week of this movie that Reed and I watched kind of in the mid-90s. This movie um, is called A Ghost in the Darkness. Who's seen that movie, A Ghost in the Darkness? This is an intense historical drama of two man-eating lions. Two man-eating lions. They terrorized the railroad workers. They were building a railroad in Kenya and Uganda from March through December in 1898. And for about nine months, these two male lions would be tracking the workers out in the middle of nowhere as they were building this railroad and this bridge. They would track these men. They would hunt these men in these makeshift communities. Um, there were, there were uh, accounted for 135 attacks on these men within nine months. So if you do the math, you know, nine times, we'll say 30, that's 270 days. So 135 attacks in 270 days. That's almost one attack per every two days, right, if I do my math correctly. Let me think, let me ask you a question. If you were there working, what would be your mindset? What would be your mindset? Would you have your head buried in your phone all night? No, you would be sober. You would be alert. You would be watchful, wouldn't you? I know I would be. You'd have your head on a swivel. The good news is they, they, they did kill those, those two lions, but it's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, I would, I would, I would ask you guys to see it because it's really a, a good, sobering movie. But this is what Peter is saying. This is what's happening. We are being hunted. In 1 Peter 5, 8, he says there is an enemy, a lion that is prowling around looking to someone he does, wants to devour. So therefore, Peter says, be sober, be watchful. You know, there's a number of illustrations in which way I could bring this home, but I want to bring it home to this because we have a lot of kids here. Parents, we need to be sober-minded. We need to be alert on our kids and what they're learning in school at every level, elementary school, middle school, high school, college, etc. Because there's a, a lion that's lurking in our school systems, that prowling around looking to devour our children. Um, I have five. We're on our. We got two left in high school. We got we got three that have graduated, and, and we've seen this. Um, but here's where I'm hopeful. One, I'm hopeful because we have teachers in those school systems that love Jesus, that have been called there by Jesus, that have been equipped by Jesus, the Holy Spirit, that have His Word, and that are going to combat the enemy there. We have, a, we have a handful of those teachers in our uh, body right now at the elementary school, the middle school, the high school, and at the college level. So praise the Lord for that, right? And they're going to they're gonna be on the outlook, and they're going to defend your kids. They're going to be watching your kids, but the primary responsibility is yours and mine. And so are you being sober? Are you being watchful in your kids and what they're learning, the curriculum that's being taught to them? And this doesn't matter if you're in public school, Christian school, online school, home school. The enemy will filter himself in any way. So parents, let's be sober-minded, as Peter calls us to be and commands us to be. Amen? All right, so that's the first thing. Be ready. Second, be hopeful. Be hopeful. The second half of verse 13. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
See, girding up our minds and being sober-minded are, are really two commands that really come and undergird the main command in the verse 13, which is set your hope on. That's the main command. This is the main thing that Peter wants us to focus on. He's telling us to gird up the loins of our mind and to be sober. Why? Because he wants us to be able to think correctly on what is coming. He wants us to set our hope on, fully on the grace to be given to you when Christ comes back the second coming. Because you've been, 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 because you've been, 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 been born again, there you go. He's telling us now, because you've been born again, you can set your hope on this great truth. We, we talked about this in, in verse 3, hope, a number of weeks ago. And you can go back and listen to the sermon. But we understand the world is throwing a bunch of wishful, wishful hopes uh, at us constantly. Constantly putting, us, putting them in our way. And if we're not engaging our minds, if we're not being sober and watchful, we can be tricked into putting our hopes into something that's not going to fully satisfy Something that's not going to fully satisfy or deliver on its promise. Again, think about today's the Super Bowl. We got two teams. We have men that have been training and preparing their whole lives for this moment. Since they were little kids, two, three years old, right? And they have given their lives over to win and be on the pinnacle of football, which would be to win a Super Bowl, to be a Super Bowl champion, and what we're going to find out is one team's going to win today. And those, those guys that have been looking their whole lives, have putting all their hopes and their dreams, saying, man, my life is going to be so much better if I just win the Super Bowl. And then someone's going to win it. And then for like a couple of days, it's going to be so much better, but then it's going to fade off. It's not going to deliver on the promise that they thought it was going to deliver. And that's just part of worldly hope. Now, is that a good hope? Yeah, it's a good hope. That's a goal you want to be, whether you're an NFL player, if you're a businessman, there's certain goals that you want to try to attain. But again, we don't want to put all of our eggs in just in that one basket. This is what Peter is saying. Peter loves hope and wants us to be hopeful. And again, we talked about Peter and his hope in verse verse 3 a couple weeks ago. And we see that Peter's hope is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. But just real quickly, let me remind you, Peter's hope was dashed. He, he was called by Jesus. He followed Jesus for three years. His hope was in Jesus. Jesus was the Messiah. And then what happened? He was crucified. And Peter's hope was gone when Jesus was put in the tomb. But three days later, when Jesus walked out of that tomb, Peter's hope became living hope. It became alive. And all the certainties of his promises now are true and guaranteed because of what Jesus has done. And this is where Peter's hope lies. But I want to point something out here that's something I think we will miss in reading this verse. Notice where Peter wants us to put our hope in. Where does Peter want us to focus our hope? He says, hope fully on, there's a preposition, a preposition, on what? The grace to be given to us by Jesus when he returns. That word grace there means I'm married to favor, but it's really highlighting the salvation Salvation in its fullness. Peter wants us to focus on the gift of the giver, from the giver, right? A lot of times we, 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 we say we got to focus on the giver, and then the gift, yeah, man, that's like an extra bonus. But did you know it's okay to focus on the gift? God is, is the father of good gifts, as James says, He gives us good gifts. And it's okay for you and for me to love Jesus because he gives us good gifts. Right? It's okay to do that. So yeah, we love Jesus for who he is, 
but we also love Jesus for what he gives us. Jesus puts this this way in Matthew chapter 5. He says, seek first the kingdom and my righteousness and what? And then I'm going to give you all things. I'm like, I read that verse. It's like, I want all those things, Jesus. Anyone else here with me? You're like, okay, then therefore I'm going to seek Jesus and his righteousness. So it's okay to focus and be motivated by the gifts that Jesus gives, as well as the giver. Because you can't separate them. They go hand in hand. So that's good. I love how Peter focuses on this. But right now that's tough, isn't it? It's tough for us to focus on the gift that is coming and when Jesus comes back, because we're, we're we live in the real world right now. We live in a Genesis 3 world right now. We understand that there's, there, it's marked by sin and pain and suffering. And some of us are hurting right now, so it's hard to hope in those things in the future. And even when we think about our salvation, sometimes it can be tough to grasp. Because as we say here around here, Scripture teaches, our, our salvation is already but not yet, Right? And what, and what we mean by that is because we've repented and trusted in Christ and what he's done for us, we're already saved. We're, we're justified. Positionally, as Christ looks at us and looks at you and me, he sees us as not sinners, but he sees us as saints. He sees us as saints, as pure, as holy, as justified, as not guilty. That's how, well, how we are positionally right now. But we're still here on the Genesis 3 world and we still, we still battle with sin. So practically, we're not there yet. We haven't reached our salvation in its fullness, in its glorified state. So it's already, but not yet. And so right now, some of us are like, man, I, I, okay, when you say Peter wants us to hope fully on the grace to be given, it's like, oh, I get that intellectually. I understand that in my mind, but I'm not feeling it right now, right? I mean, I have this, this, this tension in my mind right now. And this is how Peter started in the first two. He's like, well, first you need to gird up the loins of your mind. Get rid of that doubt. Get rid of that tension and understand first that, yeah, positionally, this is what he wants you to focus on, and you can, and then the feelings follow. So we see that there's a process to salvation. It's a process to salvation, and Peter wants us to, to help us all along this way. So first, when we first believe, we are saved from the penalty of sin. That's Romans chapter 3. We've been justified. We're considered not guilty. That's that declaration. And as we continue to live on this earth, we're saved from what? The power of sin. Romans 6 says we're no longer slaves to our sin. We're, we're sanctified. We have the ability to say no to sin and yes to God. But here's where Peter excuse me, wants us to focus on. Again, the end of our salvation, the fullness of our salvation. When Jesus returns, we're finally going to be saved from the what? The presence of sin. The presence of sin. It's no longer going to be hindrance to us. It's no longer going to harm us. I was trying to think of an illustration to think about, hey, how, how, how can we think of through this? And I said, well, a car payment, right? A car payment. Who has a necessary evil called a car payment in here, right? Only three of us? Okay, so you got to lie. We got to talk on something else. Okay. <clears throat> See, we, we, we buy a car. We purchase a car, right? And we go through the details with the hope of paying that car off someday. So we pay this necessary evil on a monthly basis. And then we finally write that last check to pay off that car. Who's written that last check to ever pay off a car? Raise your hand. Oh, so now there's more of you in here, right? All of a sudden. So yeah, and how does it feel? It feels pretty darn good, right? But it's really not till the next month that it really kicks in. Why? Because the presence of that necessary evil is no longer there, right? And then you look in your account, you're like, oh my goodness, I have that much more money left. And you're like, wow, that's awesome. This is a pale in comparison of what Peter's talking about in our salvation, 
So he's telling us to focus on the grace of God, on focus on our salvation. And that's going to help us out now because we then know that this time, this necessary evils of the, the sin that we're feeling, the hurt, the pain, is going to one day be eradicated and will no longer be there. So set your hope fully on salvation. Everyone in this sanctuary sets their hopes on something. Again, there's a lot of good things. Some of you are students and you're setting your hope on that graduation day. Some of, us, some of you are going to get married in here and, and you're focusing your hope on that marriage day. And, you know, the football players are focusing hope to win a Super Bowl. And those are all good things and we should have hopes to, to, to accomplish those things. But it's not ultimate. Peter is commanding us to set our focus, our attention, ultimately on the grace of God given to us. Focus ultimately on Christ and his good gift of salvation and it coming to fruition. So that's what Peter wants us to hope on. And he's commanding us to hope on this morning. So be ready, be hopeful, and finally three, be holy. Be holy, verses 14 through 16. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So all of a sudden, Peter changes his illustration from elect exiles in which we are to now being obedient children, obedient children. See, when we're born again, when we come to faith in Jesus, our identity changes. Um, before Jesus, we're a, a rebel of a king, an enemy of the king. But when we come to Jesus, we then become children of the king, children of the king. And we do that through this thing called adoption, through adoption, where God, because of his son Jesus, now adopts us. Adoption is rooted throughout the Bible. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says that God has predestined us through adoptions. In Galatians, it tells us that we've been redeemed uh, to be adopted as sons and daughters. My, my favorite verse that kind of alludes to adoption is in 1 John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has bestowed upon you. That what? That he has given us, that we should be called children of God. We should be called children of God. Why? Because such we are. Because we are. We've gone from rebels to now children. We've gone from outside the palace to now inside the palace. We've gone from not having any benefit of being a a part of the kingdom to now be having all the benefits of being a part of the kingdom through his adoption. We have been adopted by God the Father through Jesus Christ, and now we are infinitely loved. We are infinitely looked after, provided for. We have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And it's because of this this motive right here that would cause us to obey our Father. Now, here's the thing about being a, a parent-child relationship. Children do what? Children resemble their parents physically. Children resemble your parents. You guys all resemble your parents at some level physically. There's physical characteristics that bind us to our parents. Um, you think of the little stray little kids. You got a little Adelaide and little little Rafe running around, right? And you look at their eyes, you'd be like, oh yeah, that, that, that's Cole's kid, right? They got these beautiful blue eyes, right? Um, my wife has beautiful cheekbones, right? And if you look at my daughters, they, they got those beautiful cheekbones too. And you see, the, oh, that's, yeah, those are Rita's children. You know, some of your kids have huge noses, right? And you're like, oh, that, and you're like, oh, that's, um, no, sorry, I'm not going to go there, right? We don't have any kids with any huge noses, right? But the, the point is, is that, is that there's a, the, the, the child resembles the parent. Well, of course, God in Scripture is, is spirit. And he doesn't have any physical children. And since we are adopted, we resemble, our resemblance to him is not physical, but it's spiritual. It's relational. 
We carry on these characteristics of our spiritual father. And then we know that God the Father is love, and he's mercy, and he's grace, and he's truth, he's peace, he's sacrifice, he's service, he's patient. And and these are the attributes that we should reflect as adopted children, as obedient children to God the Father. We should uh, adopt these and reflect these characteristics of him. And so Peter here in in verse 14 first puts it in kind of the negative form. He says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And what he's saying here is like, hey, don't go back to being a rebel. Don't go back to being like your first father, Adam. But you're, you're a new creation. You've been adopted. So therefore, you have the characteristics of, your, of the second Adam, which is Christ and God the Father. You're, uh, you've been created. You're a new, a new child. So therefore, resemble your father. Now, There's a reason why Peter puts this in here. Because everyone in here, all of us in here, all have a knack to going back to this state. To conforming to some of the good old days, right? Man, I wish I could just go back to the good old days and how I used to do this, 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 and this. We all have that gift in our lives. And that's why Peter puts that. You guys have heard me say uh, this regarding my athletic ability, but really it's about my life as well. It's like the older I get, what? The better I was, right? Yeah, we all do that. We, we all forget who we were apart from Christ. And we think, oh, I wasn't really that bad. I really wasn't that self-righteous. I wasn't really that, you know, whatever. But no, we were. Listen, Peter says we are ignorant. That's how he puts it. This is how Jesus summed it up. <laughs> apart from Christ. and He says in John eight thirty nine, he says, you're doing the works of your father, the devil. You're like, ooh. I guess I really wasn't that good. I guess the good old days really weren't that good, right, Jesus? Well, this is what Peter's saying. This is a negative way. He says, don't go back to the old ways, but here's the positive command. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for here it is, you shall resemble your Father, for I am holy. For I am holy. Now, notice that little, that little, that little word there, all. You shall also be holy in what? All your conduct. And right there we're going like, oh man, I mean all of our conduct, Peter? Yeah, all your conduct. And you're like, well, what's, what's it say in the Greek? Because in the Greek it might say something else than all, right? It might mean something else besides all, right? And you know, it means all. It's, and you're like, oh, shoot. You know, and you're like, okay, all right, so all. So when you hear that word, be holy in all your conduct, when you hear that phrase, is that a positive thing you think about or is there a negative connotation with that? How do you think about it? Hopefully it's positive, because we use the word holy in a positive way a lot of times in the church. I mean, you think about, when we talk about Israel, we talk about the, the promised land. What is it? It's, it's the holy land, right? Jerusalem is the what? It's the holy city. Um, we're, we're holding our Bibles up here. What, what kind of Bibles are these? It's the holy Bible, right? Um, we, we're going to take communion. We take communion every single week, and it's, it's holy communion. Holiness means separate, otherness, set apart, pure, and here's another word that you might not think of, but it is. It's, it's whole. Holiness is whole. And I want you to think about that. We're going to talk about that in a second. So it's not some polished up legalism or self-righteousness. And when it comes to holiness in the Bible, when God says, be holy like I'm holy, this is his greatest characteristic that defines him in all of Scripture. Uh, the word holy or holiness or something to, um, to that effect, that attribute is used over 600 times or so to refer to God. And it's the one characteristic in which all other 
characteristics flow from. So think about it. When God loves you, when He loves me, it's a, it's a holy love. It's a perfect love. It's a pure love. There's no, imp- there's no impurities in His love towards us. It's a, it's a holy love. When, when, when God, you know, deems justice or gives out justice, it's a, it's a holy justice. There's no, um, there's no injustice in God's justice. It's, it's perfect. It's pure. It's holy. And you can go on and on to all of His other attributes. All of His other attributes flow out of His holiness. And we know that, again, when, when coming to explain God in the Old Testament and New Testament, again, no other attribute is spoken more than holiness in the Bible. Um, Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, as we know, Brandon taught, 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 taught on this in Revelation 4 about four weeks ago. We know that the angels are in the presence of God and they are singing a continuous song and it goes, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The Lord is totally separate. He's totally otherness than from us. He's totally pure and he's totally whole. So what does it look like for us to then resemble our Father? To be Holy. Well, that's what the rest of the first Peter is going to look like. It's we're going to get really down to the nuts and bolts of some of this stuff. And Peter's going to command us, hey, this is what it looks like to, to live a holy life. And so these things. But, but right here, he just says, be holy. So it's a general thing. So let me generally just say what it means to be holy. It means that we should be different than the world. It means if we're followers of Christ, there should be some things that separate us from those that don't know Jesus. Maybe it's how we love one another or how we serve one another. Here's a big one that can maybe separate us from those that, that don't know Jesus is, is forgiveness. It's having the humility to say like, yeah, I messed up. I hurt you. Please forgive me. Right? That's a big one. Or how about this? How we use our money. How we interact with alcohol. How we drive. How we drive. Right? We should, there should be some things that separate us so that when you're around people, you, you might get this question. Hey, there's, there's just something a little bit different about you than I see than so-and-so or the rest of the people at our work. What might that be? You must somehow be connected to God, somehow related to Him. That should be some of the things that we should probably hear over our walk at, at, at some point. Um, Alexander the Great, we know, was a, was a great, great ruler. He was a brutal guy, too. Um, and they were in a war, and one of his soldiers abandoned the fight. And they caught him, and they brought him to Alexander. And uh, Alexander said, boy, what's your name? And he said, his name is Alexander, named after him. And he was like, caught a bat by it. And he's like, whoa. And he said this, he said, son, he said, you need to change your ways, or you need to change your name, Right? Because of the representation of that. Well, the good news is God is not like Alexander the Great. Again, our identity is rooted in what Jesus has said. Right? Okay? That's where we always need to begin. Never think that God looks down upon you and is disappointed in you and be like, Oh man, there goes Aaron again, that guy. I can't believe I saved him. That never crosses his mind. He still sees you as his child and as a saint. So what does it mean to be holy? This is how I want to approach it here. I want to approach it from the angle of wholeness, of wholeness. Think of the Lord as whole, right? Uh, The Lord is perfectly whole and perfectly complete. Nothing is lacking. He is perfect. God is everything that God should be. God is perfectly God. God is holy with a W, God. 
And that's what we need to be like him. Therefore, we should be pursuing his holiness. To pursue his holiness is to pursue wholeness. This is awesome. I heard it put like this this week. He says, this is how we should pursue wholeness. Therefore, pursuing holiness is an invitation to pursuing wholeness. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? That's, that's awesome. Pursuing holiness is an invitation to pursue wholeness. I love how that sounds. It doesn't sound what? It doesn't sound burdensome. It doesn't sound stuffy. It doesn't sound churchy, right? No, it sounds good. It sounds beautiful. It sounds like, hey, I want, I want to pursue that. Ladies, let me ask you a question. What is the greatest love story that you've ever watched? What is the greatest movie, love story that you ever watched? Anyone? Throw some out. All right, let me help you out since I'm such an expert, right? How about The Notebook? Can I get an amen on The Notebook? Jeez. My wife would actually say Braveheart, which I'm like, that's my kind of woman. All right, but The Notebook. I mean, let's be, The Notebook does have it all. I'm going to be a man, I'm going to admit, it's like, I, I like watching The Notebook, right? It was a good love story. It had it all. It had the highs. It had the lows of this couple pursuing love. They loved each other. They hated each other. They, they couldn't stand each other being around. They couldn't be not be apart, right? And when you watch their story unfold, you never sit there and go like, oh man, this is burdensome, Right? You never sit and go like, oh, I think it's like going to Dennis being with one another, right? No, there's passion, there's joy, their emotions pull you in. And at the end, they both die basically at the same time, minutes apart, right? And, and I, I know what you women that, you're like, that is wholeness. When I think of a love story, that is wholeness. It's complete, ups, downs, all arounds. But in the end, they're together in each other's arms and they pass away. See, when we think about holiness and pursuing holiness, I think what we do is we make the mistake of taking these commands to be holy out of the context of the Bible. And we just see that God is some general up in heaven shouting commands down at us like Alexander the Great with no emotion. Just go do this, go do this, go do this. And if you don't do this, like, man, you're terrible. Why did I even save you? We, we, we separate the word holy in pursuit of holiness from the Scripture. And this is what I want to do. This is so, so key. And this is what Peter's getting at. The command to be holy, or the command to be whole in the Bible, is rooted in the love story of Christ and His church. Is rooted in the redemption of God the Father to His children. And that's how we got to see these commands. It's rooted in the storyline of the Bible, which is love and redemption. It's rooted in the gospel. So these commands that we have, hey, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, set your hope here, they all flow from the gospel. They all flow from the love and the grace and the mercy of a happy father over you. So therefore, gird up the loins of your mind when you disobey and you sin, you think, oh man, God's going to be mad at me. He's angry at me. He hates me right now. That, that, that's what Peter's talking about. We see the commands of God in the storyline of the Bible. 
So never fall into the trap of thinking about the commands and the exhortations apart from the gospel and the story of redemption and his love for you. And the end goal of what we're going to become. Holy, blameless, whole. So when we start to think holiness in this light, it becomes what? Beautiful, doesn't it? Become something we want to we want to pursue. This is how C.S. Lewis said it. He said it this way. He said, "How little people know who think that holiness is dull. How little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, he says, "What? It's irresistible. It's irresistible. We know this to be true, right? Let me give you an illustration. Um, the sun sets." Every day, right? Who saw last night's sunset? Yeah. I think everyone in America or in Colorado or in Fort Collins posted on Facebook the beautiful things of the sunset last night. So I didn't feel the need to, even though I was in awe. The sunset was incredible. It was mesmerizing. I mean, it just sit there and left you speechless. And you'd think, this is what a sunset is supposed to look like. It's what? It's whole. It's holy. It's perfect. It's complete. In our lives, we're going to have a lot of sunsets. And some, sets, some sunsets are going to be like, meh, you know? All right. But as we're pursuing these exhortations for the motivation of the gospel, as obedient children to a good father, we're going to have some of those whole moments, those holiness moments in our lives. And as we pursue him more and more, we're going to have more and more of those beautiful sunsets in our lives as Christians. So as I close up to this morning, it's like, where do you need to obey this morning? What what command did Peter give you that you need to obey this morning? Maybe some of us in here, we need to gird up the loins of of our mind. We need to stop thinking about all the trivial things out there, being distracted by the world. Maybe some of us need to sober up a little bit. We need to be a little bit more alert, a little bit more watchful of what's going on around us and what's going along along in our hearts and in our minds. Maybe some of us need to take our eyes off the uh, the earthly hopes and set our minds fully on the future hope of our salvation. And maybe some of us need, by the power of the Spirit, we need to change some of the patterns of our ways because we're looking more like our old father than our new father. This is what Peter's calling us to this morning. He's calling us to holiness. He's calling us to wholeness. And again, it's motivated, motivated by the gospel. So as we pursue holiness, as we pursue wholeness, as we start to pursue and resemble our Father more and more, 2020 is going to be epic. Can you see why First Peter is so good for this church right now to set us on the path of, of holiness in 2020? It's going to be epic. And then the people that you're going to follow, you're going to be as beautiful as that sunset last night. You're going to be, as C.S. Lewis puts it, as they look at your lives and the way you act and respond to one another, you're going to be irresistible. And they're going to be saying, hey, what is, di- what, what is it about you? And it's going to open the door for you to share the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great passage of Scripture. Lord, an incredible passage of Scripture of really hope. Hope and holiness. 
We see that our holiness begins in the mind and and good theology, good thinking leads to doxology, leads to action. We thank you for that. We see we're called to be sober-minded and we can see how that's going to help us so we don't fall into the pits of the world. We want to set our hopes on the thing that will be guaranteed to come to pass. And those are the promises of Scripture. And ultimately to our glorification with you where sin is eradicated totally from our lives. And finally, we want to resemble you throughout this life. To be holy as as you are holy. We are in the pursuit of being whole. And that only comes empowered by your Holy Spirit and informed by your word. So Lord, these are the These are the ways in which you have called us and we desire to obey, not out of duty, but out of love and what you have done for us in the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.